Hi, I'm Theo. And I'm Scarlett. And welcome to the Theo's Book Club podcast, where we talk about queer books. And today, internet trolls. Today, we will be interviewing Mackenzie Lee, author of The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue and The Gentleman's Guide to Getting Lucky. Make sure you check out our website, theosbookclub.com, where you can read more of Theo's thoughts on the books. You can find a link to get a copy of the book for yourself, and you can join the conversation in our forums. And if you're like Scarlett and prefer to read with your ears, I suggest checking out theosbookclub.com slash audible, where you can sign up for a free trial and have access to all your favorite books. That's theosbookclub.com slash A-U-D-I-B-L-E to start a free trial and help support the podcast. And the best part is you get a free book download that you can keep forever. So please share this with your friends and family, hit the like button and subscribe. Now off to our interview with Mackenzie. Queer books and queer topics and queer people that won't stop talking. So read and chat it up at Theos Book Welcome back to Theo's Book Club. My name is Theo, and I use he, him pronouns. And I'm Scarlett, and I use she, her. And we are here today with the absolutely lovely Mackenzie Lee. Hi, I'm Mackenzie. Yes. How are you today? I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here with you. We are so happy to have you. This is very exciting. Mackenzie, um, something we do to introduce every author that we interview is a very intense, very fast lightning round of five questions. Are you oh, no. ready? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have Correct to answer. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, on your mark, get set, go. What's your favorite food? Vanilla soft serve ice cream. Oh, that's good. Ooh, oh, wow. What's your favorite color of car? Red. Oh, yes. What? That's what mine is. What is your favorite uh, kind of sock? Of sock? Mm-hmm. Are there multiple kinds of socks? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, then like hand-knit ones. Oh, Ooh, good from answer. Very from good Norway. Answer. A pre- this is too much information, but a friend of mine went to Norway several years ago and got me these gray Nordic pattern hand knit socks that I really, really love. And I have lost one of them several times and found it every time. So it's also just like the sock that keeps coming back, which I really appreciate. A magical I love that. Hand knit sock. Okay. What is your favorite kind of flower? Uh, tulips. Mm. Oh, mine too. And uh, also, my brain, my brain definitely went. So you said flour, and I was like baking. Yeah. Like, kind of flour. I love, I love King would have, Arthur. Would have accepted yeah. whole wheat. Yeah. Would also have accepted that answer. answer. Like, was, there's like a notorious interview or an internet famous interview with I think it's Demi Lovato that someone's like, "What's your favorite dish?" And she's like, "I gotta say a mug." Yeah. <laughs> my favorite thing ever. Very, what's that? What's that miscongeniality line? Your favorite date? April twenty eighth. Yeah. 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 April <laughs> Um, and last question, uh, where are you from? Uh, originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. Hmm. Cool. And where are you now then? You said you were said earlier, just before we started rolling, that you moved. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles now. Very nice. I think we know everything there is to know about Every you now. Possible I think thing. we covered all the bases. Yeah. Should we get into the book? You said we had a, I had a quiz and legitimately my heart started racing. Yeah. <laughs> Talks a little bit about a little bit about the perfectionism anxiety I have that I'm like, gotta pass this. Yeah, we definitely harbor that over here as well. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> we are discussing The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, also the follow-up novella, The Gentleman's Guide to Getting Lucky. Oh, fun. Rah, rah. Oh. <laughs> we love it. Um, I genuinely love this book. I was talking to you a bit about that before. It's so fun. And again, you've written such amazing characters that have these really complex yet yeah. fun relationships with each other. It's great. I want to talk a little bit about maybe your process on visualizing the book and maybe setting it around this grand tour and like 
writing a period piece and all that really fun stuff? Sure. Nice small question. Yeah. Um, I, I, that was one so... really clear, <laughs> really streamlined question I asked you. Okay. Do I need to explain the Grand Tour? Should we start there? Yeah, that sounds Maybe great. Maybe yeah. for the, for the listeners. Yeah. yeah. So the Grand Tour, if you're not familiar, is this phenomenon where if you were a young, rich white guy in the 1700s and you had this awkward period of time between finishing your schooling and then waiting for your dad to die so that you could take over his estate, often how you would pass that time was by spending sometimes up to several years on the continent. Um, so you would go to Europe, you would live in all the different sort of cultural capitals for several months, you would uh, see the sites and go to museums and talk about art and philosophy and things like that. But the sort of unspoken purpose of the tour was that you were supposed to kind of sow your wild oats and maybe like drink yourself sick a couple of times and get that out of your system so you could come back to England and be a functioning member of the peerage. I first learned about the Grand Tour uh, when I was in college. I had just done a year abroad in the UK and I had done a lot of traveling on a much, much lower budget than uh, than Monty and co do it in the book. Um, I was traveling more like the when they're like Sleeping on, sleeping on the side of the road in the, um, between Marseille and Spain. That's more how I was traveling. Yeah. Because uh, I was 20 and poor and incredibly dumb. Had no self preservation instinct. Um, and so I had done this year abroad. I was feeling a little bit adrift. Uh, I'd had this great transformative year of travel and then was sort of like, okay, now I have to go back and be an adult. I don't know what to do. I'd been working on a history degree, thought I was going to do a PhD. And then that kind of, that bubble kind of burst for a variety of reasons. So I went back to do my last year of college in the U.S. and uh, I was a teaching assistant for a humanities course that was all structured around the idea of going on a grand tour. And so this professor who had structured this was so brilliant and that she would say, like, OK, we're going to first you go to Paris. And then we would talk about like the art movements were, that were significant in Paris and different pieces of art that have come out of these. It was, it was a really, really smart way to structure sort of an overview of European humanities course. Um, and I'd never heard of the grand tour, but I had just had this experience of doing something very similar. Um, I had a lot of friends who did gap years and I love this idea of like the 1700s kind of gap year and how that encompassed the, it really encompasses like the, uh, the universality of parts of the human experience that even in the 1700s, we were traveling to find ourselves and taking this time when we're, when we're young to have these sort of uh, formidable uh, experiences by, by going to different places and, and learning about other cultures and other people. Um, and so I just like, I loved it. And I wasn't uh, creative. I wasn't a writer at the time. So I just sort of shelved it away as like, someday I'll do something with this. I don't know what, but I will. And then yeah, several years down the road, I was working on I had so I had a first book come out uh, called This Monstrous Thing, which was a steampunk Frankenstein reimagining that was wildly unread. And uh, Harper only published another book for me because they contractually had to. The suckers had like contracted me for like second untitled novel. I was like, you're stuck with me. Everyone go read. What's it called yeah. again? This monstrous thing. Everyone go uh, read please. this monstrous thing. Yeah, please buy it in bulk. Yes. Um, <laughs> turns out when you write a Frankenstein reimagining, that sort of narrows your audience quite a bit. And then when it's steampunk Frankenstein, it just really really narrows it even further. So there's about seven people in the world that this book was, was written for. I had this like untitled second book with them. I was drafting something else and it, it spoke to my my mental state at the time that it was a really sad book about Chicago steel mills in the 1890s. And it was like, everybody was like losing their limbs and getting cholera and dying when they were 25 from smoke inhalation. And it was just like a miserable, sad book. And I was feeling very miserable and sad and sort of like my career was over before it began. And just not enjoying myself very much. Uh, and I was struggling to write this book. And so I decided I was going to just write something fun that was just for me. And sincerely, I did not think anybody would ever read it. And my rule was, 
a don't do any research because I was like I don't want to do research I just want to like have fun writing it and right. I eventually went back and like padded it out with the research but when I started it I was like we're just doing our like fun version of the 1700s it's gonna be the adventure novel that I love like I love the sort of uh like it, it's like Indiana Jones like parts of the Caribbean or like Scarlet Pimpernel yeah. or Treasure Island like this kind of old school adventure stories and nothing is too audacious and nothing is too strange or weird or outrageous which is why there's a scene where Monty runs naked through the gardens of Versailles. Um, and so, so I was like, good. I'm just gonna write this fun book for me. And uh, then it got to a point with the Sad Chicago Steel Mill book where my editor was like, so we either need to basically rework this from the ground up or maybe we should start thinking about looking at a different project. And uh, so suddenly this book that I didn't think anyone else was ever gonna see was like the only thing I had on deck. So I dusted it off and, and showed it to her. I, I wouldn't say she liked it right off the bat. I think it was kind of like, okay, this is it better than the steel mill that I wrote a real book and then some people read it and then I wrote a couple more so how did you how did you get then from um finishing your history degree thinking you're going to do a PhD and that following through to a two book publishing deal with Harper what's what's the middle bit in there uh the middle is an MFA that I really didn't think through um thought I didn't <laughs> did it but also like I look back on how little thought I put into that very expensive decision and I can't recommend my younger self's decision-making process to anyone. I did a history degree. I wanted to be an academic. And then I went to the UK. I was studying the Wars of the Roses, specifically mm -hmm. women in the Wars of the Roses. And there was a social history and I was working with over there. And she kept scoring me really low on all my papers. And I finally went and had a conference with her. And I was like, why do you hate me? And she said, you can't write dialogue for Richard III in your academic paper. And you can't write scenes about Henry V, like, pacing the battle of... Like, I was basically <laughs> writing, like, War of the Roses fan fiction and right. putting that in as my academic papers. Incredible. And she was like, you can't do this. And you Brilliant. either need to maybe rethink how you write, or maybe we need to find somewhere else that your writing would be better suited. So it wasn't that I, like, didn't realize what historical writing was until that moment. It just kind of occurred to me after doing this, this year of work with her that, like, this wasn't the way I wanted to write. It felt so... Like the stuff I was reading as an academic felt so inaccessible. It felt so difficult to slog through. It didn't feel like an accessible way to write. And it wasn't, I wasn't reaching many people with this, with the way I was working at the time. Academia is so exclusive and so limited in its scope. And so I just, I wanted to do something more fun. I wanted to, I wanted to tell stories. Like that's what it came down to. And when you're, when you're a historian, there's certain limits on that, on the way that you tell those stories, namely the truth. Um, so I, I, I came back to finish my degree and sort of didn't know what I was going to do and, and had an advisor tell me I had just wasted four years and nobody would take me seriously in an MFA program. So maybe I kind of applied just as like revenge on her, <laughs> um, and then got into this MFA program and, uh, moved to Boston, uh, did the MFA and had a fantastic, fantastic experience. It was so wonderful to have two years of just sort of like focusing on, focusing on my work and focusing on my writing and, and taking it seriously and mm. being surrounded by people who are taking it seriously. Yeah. Um, and then I was really lucky that mo this monstrous thing was my, was my thesis project in grad school. Um, it sold about two weeks after I finished my degree, wow. which is a great way to shut down the, what are you going to do with an MFA in creative writing question that everybody asks you after <laughs> you graduate. So highly recommended. We love revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, revenge, revenge advanced degrees. It's a very expensive form of revenge. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We've really enjoyed talking to you about the books today. Um, we just want to take this moment to let you know about Audible. Really fantastic service where you can actually listen to books. You don't have to read. How cool is that? 
If you go to theosbookclub.com slash audible, that's theosbookclub.com slash A-U-D-I-B-L-E. You can start a free trial today. And the best part is you'll get to download a book and keep that one for free. So after you've heard it, you can hear it again whenever you want. Audible. Noise. <laughs> uh, something I want to talk about next is myself, who absolutely adores this book, and I know other people who do adore this book are drawn towards it because of the queer themes and the discussion of queerness in the book and like Monty's exploration of his own sexuality. The other two novels that follow it, that follow the other Montague siblings, um, do these queer themes follow through those books as well? Is there a through line through those? Do you want to talk a little bit about that and the rest of the series? Part of what I really wanted to do with Gentleman's Guide was write a queer history book and write a queer adventure novel and let characters who are typically not the heroes of these this sort of archetypal story that I really love, uh, I wanted I wanted them to be the heroes. And in in the case of Monty and Percy, I was like, I want to write about I want to write about about a bisexual character in history. I want to sort of push back against this idea that nobody was gay until Rent came out in the nineties, <laughs> right. um, or even this idea that if you were gay before like nineteen ninety or whatever, you had to be sad and oppressed, and you couldn't be with the people you loved, and everyone was in these like sexless, loveless marriages. I hate those ideas, and I hate the way we talk about sexuality in history as this sort of monolithic, miserable experience rather than what it was, which is that it just like today, it varies enormously by so many factors, your location, your sexual or your gender identity or socioeconomic station, your religion, like all these factors go into the queer experience. Um, and we just don't sort of grant that that individuality in history. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to write about with the first one, I went in really wanting to write specifically about sexuality and history and writing a book where the main character's sexuality was both incidental to the story, but also a really important component because in my experience, that's how sexuality is. Like, it's something that affects everything you do while also not being the defining characteristic of your life. That, um, that, yes, yes. <laughs> it's a it's a weird balance because we talk about, you know, we want incidental queerness. And then you, you see media with incidental queerness and everybody's like, ah, well, this person wasn't like, they didn't think enough about being bisexual. And then you get the books that are like just about queer people and their identity. And they're like, ah. This, this book is just about a gay person. Gay right. people are more than just gay. All of these things are true. Let's do all of these yeah. things. And, and let's publish a lot of books about queerness so we can have all of these stories and know that none of them are right or wrong. To go back to your question though, so the, the first one was very consciously about sexuality and history. The second one I, I didn't plan to write. That was one that HarperCollins came to me and said, could you do a second one? And I said, yes, I'd love to write a second book about Monty and Percy. And they said, no, we'd really like a Felicity one. And I said, no, I, I really think I want to write more about Monty and Percy. And like, Fine, you can you can try it. And so I wrote about 50 pages of a Monty Percy sequel and then came crawling back to them. And I was like, okay, you're right. Because the problem <laughs> with it, like the first one is all the, 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 the main sort of tension of the book is the sexual tension between Monty and yeah. Percy. And I, it's a spoiler, but I say this all the time because I want people to know in spite of the fact that it's a historical queer book, it is an unabashedly happy ending, which is what I really wanted going into it. When you have two characters that end up together and that's sort of the big uh, narrative momentum of the first book, then in the second book, they you lose the sexual tension. Then you have to create tension in other places, which is why these like there's a lot of young adult series. I think where like they get together at the end of the first book, and then the second book is them like fake fighting for the whole time, or just like fighting <laughs> right. in a way that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and that's because you you've lost the sexual tension, so you have to create some other kind of tension. Mm -hmm. My editor smartly saw this before I did, and so I was like, okay, I don't want to make them fight. 
let's just write a little novella about them having sex. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> which is the perfect I, so sequel. I, <laughs> it's like it's just it the ended up being follow up. It ended up being it ended up being exactly what it needed. So yes. very very happy with where it turned out. But it took a couple of false starts, and so when I started writing about Felicity, who's the little sister, who's featured a little bit in in book, she's sort of a minor character in book one, but is still very prominent and had a, a big presence. Um, I wanted to write about women in history in the same way that I'd written about sexuality and and talk about how this is, you know, a piece of Felicity's identity that's integral to everything she is, but not the only thing she is. Um, yes. And so it ends up becoming sort of a book about her learning how to take herself seriously as a woman, but also how to take other women seriously and other women who have not made the same choices or who do not express their femininity mm. in the same way she does. Yeah. Um, and that was something like, I was a, I, as a kid and a teenager, I was very not like other girls. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. It was like, there's no, there's no better way to be a woman. You don't have to be yeah. a man, but you also don't have to like uh, be into these really like traditionally feminine things. And um, so I wrote that book very much like for kind of a younger version, not even a younger version, a version of myself that's still unpacking this constantly. Um, and then the third book uh, is about their little brother who's appears only as a, only as a voiceless scream in the other room. The, in the goblin. He's a baby. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> goblin. Um, and so I sort of, I wanted to write about another thing that is uh, close to my my heart, unfortunately, which is mental illness. And I wanted to write about, uh, again, in the same way with queerness, we don't really talk about it in history. We kind of act like it's a new phenomenon, but I wanted to write about mental illness in a historical context. And so that's what the third book became. Um, and the queerness is present throughout because, I, those those tenets of sort of sexuality, women's history, and, and mental illness are not present in just one book. They end up floating through all of them because all the characters are in them too. So you have Monty in the first one learning about his sexuality, but also he's dealing with PTSD. He's had, a, he's had an abusive dad his whole life. He's dealing with really crippling self-esteem issues. Felicity came from that same home. So she's also dealing with like sort of a abusive neglect through her whole, for her whole life. Um, in the first one, Monty's figuring things out about Felicity and trying to learn like, oh, so you also have a separate deal because you're a woman and I've never thought about this before. And Felicity has to sort of consider like, okay, so I've never, I was raised in the 1700s. Everybody thinks gays are bad at this time. Right. Uh, but this is my brother and this is Percy and they clearly love each other. And then all of that carries forward into the third book with Adrian where he's he's interacting with them. And there's a couple of, I've, I've tried really hard to put in side characters who are also all of these things, who are women, who are mentally ill, who are queer, who are not white, all of these things we sort of don't think yeah. of as necessarily populating European historical adventure novels. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question that you asked 25 minutes ago, <laughs> um, yes, the queerness does kind of continue through all the books. I love that. I also, I just want to say I'm obsessed with Felicity, like upholding the ideals of the, of the time, but also not caring. She's like, yeah, Monty, you, you, you know what you do is a sin. But then, like, also doesn't care. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, that's my well, so, that's my brother Monty. He's he's a sinner, but <laughs> it's a vice. <laughs> it's so. so I came. I grew up in a really religious community, mm -hmm. and so I had like kind of a similar journey to what Felicity goes through a lot, which is this initially like you're you're brought up with this religious idea of homosexuality as a sin, and you don't ever challenge it because it gets told to you a lot when you're little, and that's really formative. And then you start to like meet people and you're like okay so this doesn't line up this what i'm seeing doesn't line up with what i was told mm. and then maybe you start to recognize something about yourself and you're like so what i what i am experiencing now doesn't line up with what i'm told and it's not overnight it's something that takes time and it takes self-reflection and it takes letting go and i i always 
the there's very little criticism of these books that stings me. But every once in a while, I see people talking about how Felicity is homophobic, which I think is just absurd, I and it makes yeah. me crazy because I'm like, first of all, she's a woman in the 1700s, yeah. like it's pretty reasonable to not expect her to immediately accept her brother is, is bisexual. Yeah. And like, that's a pretty, and she's not, she doesn't shun him. She's not mean. She, like, no. she's just sort of like, this is, this is clashing with my, with my foundational knowledge of the world. Let me think right. about this. Um, and it makes me crazy because it's just such an unrealistic expectation that everyone we meet is a hundred percent going to accept everything about us immediately. Cause we all come from different places and we have right. different baggage and, and different ideas and it doesn't make us bad people it just makes us people who have to learn and, and reevaluate yeah i i never once saw felicity as homophobic i just i just thought it was literally hilarious that she was like it's the nonchalance of like <laughs> of like yeah no you do bad things monty but it's it's fine <laughs> like and again like it would i think it's only I think she's, yeah. she's way more concerned about like his drinking exactly and, uh, like that is really the things like that she's and that's that's part of what like chain turns her around on it is she's like okay so I've been told this is not a good thing, but I'm looking at Monty and Percy here and Percy, who's like the best human on earth. How is this a bad thing? Like, how is this person who makes my brother happy, who makes my brother better, who makes my brother want to be like healthy and, and healed and work on himself for the first time? How could that possibly be a bad thing? And she never tells Monty not to be with Percy, which is like, that would be the homophobic thing. She's like, no, you can't. Right. Like, she, if you. she was like, no, you can't do that. It is like really, really bad. You're disgusting. Like that never happens. Mm. It's almost like she's. Do you want to go? Do you want to go argue with people on Goodreads? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, come find me. Yo, people on Goodreads, let's Bye. talk about it. Come here. Do out <laughs> yeah. next time. Good, uh, uh, Mackenzie, Theo. call me up. Call Theo up next time you find one of those reviews. <laughs> I will. We'll have I a think, chat. I think this is the butchiest I've ever seen you. <laughs> Yo, Felicity's not more forward, dude. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Did you even read the book? <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, she is, uh, she's such a badass too. She's like 15 and like switches the covers of her novels with medical books so she can secretly study medicine without her father finding out. Love that. Do you wear clothes? How about shirts? This is a really cool one from everybody on stage. They're sick. Watch this. Wow. You've never seen someone put on a shirt like that before. If you want to get one of these cool shirts, go to everybodyonstage.com slash Theo and use the code Theo for 20% off. Theo's doing it. Do you have a f- favorite quotation from the book? Oh, I do. This is going to be such a pivot because this quote makes me cry. Oh, hey, brace yourselves, everyone. <laughs> this really, Gird your loins. really gets to me. I'm a very emotional person, Mackenzie. Um, so a lot of this book, I feel called. We're going to talk about this quote and then I have, to, I have a bone to pick with you about how I feel personally called out from so many things in this book. I accept this. All right. One of my favorite quotes from the book. It's near the end. Okay. So spoilers. Spoiler. <laughs> Biggest spoiler. If you haven't <laughs> been spoiled already. We are not broken things, neither of us. We are cracked pottery mended with lacquer and flakes of gold. Whole as we are, complete unto each other. Complete and worthy and so very loved. Okay. So I do understand maybe why that made you cry. Yeah. Oh, my it's... heart. When you say that's near the end of the book, that's literally the last page of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's somewhere near the end. Yeah. No. Oh my God. It's a theme that is so uh, throughout the whole book. Like this idea of like, we are not defined by the bad things we've done. Broken things can be beautiful again, depending Mm. on how they're put back together. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that is such a beautiful part of the book. And Monty has these reflections like quite often. And Mackenzie, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of, I guess, Monty's journey or maybe your journey with like this idea of feeling broken, but not letting it define you or how we're put back together, you know, leads us to where we go. Yeah. So at the start of the book, Monty 
is sort of feeling like he's on this inevitable path. Um, and it's partly defined by by who he is and his sort of responsibilities as a as a lord and, and as a as a rich young white guy in England in the 1700s. Um, but also he feels very sort of uh, shackled to decisions he's made in the past, uh, many of which have come as a result of things that were beyond his control. So things like trauma he's had around his sexuality. Um, he has an abusive father who's, who's really done a number on his sort of self-worth. Um, and he has, as a, as a response to that, he's has some pretty unhealthy coping mechanisms that he sort of feels like they've like they've like he's ruined his he's ruined his own life uh and he feels like there's no possible chance anyone could love me let alone percy this person who i love so much because i've made these bad choices and i can't ever dig myself out of this hole i might as well just keep digging deeper um and the whole book for him is sort of recognizing that we don't we don't love each other in spite of the bad things we've done we we love each other because of them and how we move forward and how those things and how we move forward from them most importantly shape us into the people we are um, and also that there are so many things about ourselves that are are intrinsic and that we sometimes feel like we can't we can't love um, or that someone it's like, I hope somebody loves me, even though I'm like this, um, when really that's not the way we should we should think about ourselves. And, and that's not any way to have self-worth. And it ends up that Percy has things he's also dealing with. And also the, the whole book is sort of Monty recognizing, too, that the people around him, they also experience this, that everyone goes through this. Everyone uh, has a life that is more than just sort of the pieces that touch yours. We are all main characters in our own story with these like with terrible things we've done and great things we've done and things we hate about ourselves and things we think no one else, if, if anyone else ever found out, they can love us. And um, so the whole book is him sort of learning to accept those things, both in himself and and both in other people and recognizing that he's not the only damaged person in the world. Right. And that doesn't disqualify him from, from love or, or from existing or from, from his life meaning something. Yeah. That's like beautiful. really, really beautiful stuff. Yeah. And that's the selling point of the book for me, I think. That's the thing I connect with the most, I think, you know, yeah. not being defined by the things we've done. Right. Um, we are coming to the end of the podcast, but we do have one more very important question. And Mackenzie, this, like before, is a test, so be ready. Oh, no. <laughs> I just got my heart rate under control. And we're going to get it back up again. I think, I think this question is... I've asked it to several other authors, but I think you are the most qualified to answer this one, maybe. In classic literature, is there a character that is not written as queer, but in your mind is obviously gay? Okay. Um, like, that's so many. Now I'm like forgetting every book I've ever read. <laughs> uh, my brain, the first place my brain goes is Joe March in Little Women. Oh, I think you could do a queer, a queering of Little Women so easily. The only thing I think that's missing is like the close female friend that she has this sort of like queer subtext with, like, mm. like Anne of Green Gables and um, Diana. Oh, definitely. Like Joe doesn't have the, she's got her sisters, so that doesn't work. Right. Because, relations um mm -hmm. but i'm like if you had if there was like a like a close female friend in joe's life that you could sort of i think you, you could queer queer little mm -hmm. women pretty easily if that um, if that film in the 90s the winona Ryder christian bale <laughs> film wasn't a bisexual awakening for yeah. i'm not gonna say me but probably oh. me oh boy <laughs> i had it with just with florence Pugh, and she's not joe but like oh. florence Pugh and the new yeah. little women like good grief I mean, and now she has her Septum piercing in her oh, short hair. Don't, don't get me started oh. about it. Don't get me started about it. I mean, like, Lori. <laughs> the windows of the J. Yeah. Crew. I walked by all these. Lori's a Lori's a fairly. Uh, I think Lori's a little little queer. Oh yeah, I guess it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. see them being, you know, Joe and Lori being 
little queer babies. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's why they that. were such good friends. Yeah, and then they Lori's were closeted like, friends. Well, that's together. why also yeah. Lori's like. <laughs> Alone in this house across the street, and he's like, "Look at that house full of girls. Right. I want to go play dress up with them." Yeah, like, it's a little, you don't want to play into stereotypes. Yeah, yes, hundred percent. Tell Maybe us who they are. We'll be five for all forever from now on. Well, uh, <laughs> um, and I just want to really quick because mm. I have a bone to pick with you. Oh yes. The main point. Oh of, yeah. Uh, the main kind of through line of this book is being in love with your best friend. How dare you, Mackenzie? Oh, I feel so person called him. out. You came for <laughs> me. Um, so hardcore. <laughs> How did you get inside my head? I understand this is a universal experience for so many people, but I just feel personally attacked by it. And I just had to call you out on that. I don't even need a response. I just wanted to say okay. it I feel like it's a, it's a, especially a universal experience for queer people. Because yeah. I think for, for queer people, we really struggle with that line between friendship and romantic attraction, especially when you're, you're with people of the same gender who you've been told you are only supposed to have one kind of relationship with. So right. it's hard to sort of, it's almost hard to identify the feelings when they turn romantic because you don't have any framework for the fact that they that they are or will. I think has is there any queer person who hasn't at some point realized they're in love with their best friend, like with a sort of like lightning bolt from on high? Yeah, I'm sure that person doesn't exist. No, no. <laughs> so honestly, I've had I've because of these books, I've had so many lovely interactions with so many lovely people and heard just like incredible stories from people about how these books have have affected them, and it's amazing and it's such a privilege. But one of my one of my most favorite things to come out of this is actually a a person who wrote to me and said after they read this book, uh, they had a similar, real they realized they were also in love with their best friend of years and years and years and went and told her and they are now married. And I follow them oh. on Instagram and watch their beautiful queer love story. Oh my God, incredible. And it just like, it's, it's, yeah, I, I'm like, okay, my work's that's done. So yeah. Also, like, I think <laughs> that's the cutest place to end this because there's no way anything we say will be better than that right. story. Right. Plus, these people yeah. have cute stories and I just yelled at you about it. So I think um, maybe <laughs> it's our natural two kinds of people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Mackenzie, where can people find you online? I'm at the Mackenzie Lee on Instagram Amazing. and not really anywhere else. <laughs> Lovely. And Great. you can find me fighting with Felicity haters in the comments of this video. Perfect. Um, which I will be doing. <laughs> <laughs> so please I check it. Not. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us, Truly, Mackenzie. Thank this you. was fantastic. So thank great. you for having me. Incredible. Lovely to talk to you both. Yes. Bye. All right. Thank you. Gears Book Club is executive produced by Greg Crothers for everybody on stage. This episode is written by Robert Popoli and Chelsea Jane Bray. Our producer is Denise Niles with production assistance by Alicia Tablin, directed by Greg Crothers. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Popoli and mixed and mastered by Rob Russo. Gearsbookclub.com. <laughs> 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 <laughs>